Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by J.J. McCullough, who's a writer, political commentator, and successful YouTuber. He joined us a few times last year to talk about, among other things, the Trudeau government's internet bills, as well as the state of conservative politics in Canada. I'm grateful to have him join us again to discuss last week's Conservative Party convention, the imminent return of Parliament, and what it means for Canada to have a North American identity. J.J.? Thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Great to be back. Let's start with the convention. There are various entry points for this part of the conversation. One thing that struck me, though, was how clean, smooth, and professional it was. There were no gimmicks gone wrong, no infighting or misfired policy proposals. This looked like it was put together by a team that's ready for a general election campaign. Why don't you respond to that observation and the other big takeaways for you? Yeah, I would agree with with that assessment. It felt I would say I would describe it as being orthodox, but uh, safe. You know, those were in watching the speeches and just sort of assessing the general vibe of the thing. It felt very on message, very disciplined, very controlled. All of the major speeches kind of hit the same notes, which were largely the notes that were articulated by Pierre Polyev himself. And uh, it was a message of, of, of a pretty, I think, orthodox kind of conservatism. You know, a pretty sort of standard, uh, unsurprising message that I think would be very familiar to anybody that was, uh, you know, came of age during the Harper years in terms of what the Conservative Party stands for. You know, there was consistent messages of it being, you know, tough on crime. You know, we're going to cut spending, but we're also going to cut taxes, you know, need to curb inflation. I mean, maybe that's a somewhat sort of novel argument that wasn't uh, as prominent during the Harper years. But, you know, it's sort of become a, a somewhat sort of orthodoxy into itself. You know, we're going to stand up for for gun rights. We're going to be very pro-energy, pro-oil, pro-natural gas. There was even a few sort of like uh, hits of the past that I feel haven't been as prominent perhaps in recent years. Like the, uh, the going after foreign aid was an interestingly common uh, thing that I noticed came up a lot. You know, giving money to dictators when our people back home are suffering and that sort of thing. So Pierre's speech in particular, I just found to be like extremely... Uh, you know, it was well written, but it was also very deliberately written, it felt like. It felt like every, you know, word and sentence had been planned in a very careful way to be uh, resonant with the kind of voters that the Conservative Party is clearly making a priority to target, you know, going after this kind of very consistent message that the middle class of this country is suffering in a very uh, measurable, material way as it relates to two key sort of signifiers, which is the cost of housing and the cost of groceries, right? And just incredible message discipline on that. And then 
if I can add one other thing, I think it's worth noting as well what issues that both Pierre and all the other people that were speaking at the convention did not choose to emphasize or highlight or speak at any great length about, which was, uh, you know, the trans issue did not come up, even though that seems to be gaining, frankly, some resonance as a conservative issue across the country, uh, particularly as it relates to children in schools. You know, there was no talk of COVID, which I thought was interesting, despite, uh, you know, Pierre arguably uh, using that issue as one of his, his uh, you know, causes that he's risen on. Uh, the truckers, which had been such a rallying cry for conservatives in the last year, was like weirdly, very rarely mentioned or mentioned only sort of in a kind of passing, kind of oblique sort of way. Um, yeah, and then, you know, climate, which I think continues to be a, an issue of some sensitivity for this party, is again, not really mentioned except in the context of well, you know, we're going to support all of our energy industries and, you know, the Canadian energy industry is the best at doing everything. And therefore, you know, to be pro-Canadian oil is in some sort of convoluted way also being pro-lowering uh, emissions because, you know, we just do everything so well here that, you know, you can't help but fix climate change while supporting the oil industry. So those are kind of like my main takeaways. Yeah, we'll pursue many of those over the course of the conversation, but I want to stay for a moment on your observation, JJ, that there wasn't a kind of underlying orthodoxy reflected both in Polyev's own remarks and the convention itself. Conservatives in other parts of the Anglo-American world are going through something of a chasm or a schism, rather, when it comes to you know, freedom conservatives versus national conservatives, some voices challenging conventional conservative economic orthodoxy, others arguing that conservatives need to subordinate economic arguments in favor of cultural ones. What do you think explains the extent to which the Polyev-led conservatives have by and large askewed some of these deeper fractures and major debates occurring within the world of conservatism? Yeah, that's a very excellent question. And it was certainly something that was at the front of my mind as I was listening to Pierre's speech and some of the other speeches as well, because I think that there has been, you know, certainly among Canadian conservative intellectuals, an idea that there is an opening for uh, Canada's conservative movement and conservative parties specifically to kind of eschew some of the orthodoxy that I think, you know, in Britain and America is now kind of believed to have been a kind of obstacle to the to those conservative parties' uh, electoral successes. And yet, like, there was just very little of that. And I think, like, the I was even trying to, like, note where there was possibly any kind of uh, rejection of, of sort of standard kind of, like, Reagan-Thatcher sort of era orthodoxy. And the only thing that I could hear, at least in, in Pierre's speech specifically, was uh, there was a single line where he was sort of denouncing the kind of corrupt uh, big medical corporations, right? The idea that, like, the the big medical establishment, the corporate medical establishment has in some way been like complicit in the, uh, in the opioid crisis. And like maybe in this, to the extent that like a conservative politician attacking a corporation using that kind of language, like suggesting that it's corporate character is somehow part of its wickedness, like, okay, like maybe that, but you know, that's kind of, thin gruel compared to some of the anti-Orthodox things. But to answer your question uh, specifically, uh, I guess I would just sort of say that uh, Pierre Polyev himself is, I think, just a real creature of a certain Orthodox conservative upbringing. Like, he's a man who's been in Parliament, what, since he was in his mid-20s? You know, 
I know this because, you know, I interviewed him and I asked him some questions about this. You know, he sort of defined himself as someone that kind of grew up in the reform tradition, had his conservative sort of beliefs informed by a lot of the political debates of the 90s, which, again, was also something that kind of came up in his speech. He got some praise for kind of like suggesting that uh, liberals and NDP governments during the 90s were fiscally responsible in a way that the Trudeau government isn't, that they were good at balancing budgets and keeping spending under control and that kind of thing. You know, that's a very orthodox uh, opinion of a certain kind of conservatism that was very mainstream in the 90s and up through the Harper years. But yeah, I mean, I just don't think that Pierre as a man is necessarily all that kind of curious about new sort of strains in conservatism. I think he feels that he knows what works. He knows what the country needs. He's obviously like a deeply like confident and sort of self-possessed man who I think is very competent or uh, confident of his own abilities and his own insights and his own observations. So I don't know, like in Canada, we do have a very sort of like leader centric system, a very hierarchical political system in which the people at the top have a great deal of influence. And if we're looking for kind of unorthodox or sort of creative minded conservative figures, you know, I'm not exactly sure where we should be looking, you know. Uh, and again, like all of the other sort of speeches that were being given at the convention were largely in line with kind of Pierre's take as well. So, you know, it, it seemed like a convention, if I can characterize it again, just sort of broadly, like it seemed like a convention that was ready for an election. And in that sense, was very disciplined and was ready to fight on very uh, sort of set terms and was not really interested in, uh, you know, kind of like, displaying a buffet of all the different options of conservatism that uh, people can pick and choose from. It was sort of like, no, this is what conservatism stands for under this leader, this, this man, and this is what we're going to fight on. And, you know, maybe if Pierre goes away someday, if he doesn't lose, if he loses the next election, which seems unlikely, but let's say if he does, you know, then maybe there'll be a little bit more uh, reckoning. But as long as he's in charge, I think that this is what Canadian conservatism is going to be. One exception may be that the speech alluded a couple of times to the so-called woke wars, including references to the treatment of Canadian history and the perceived apologism of the Trudeau government for Canadian values. What do you think of that line of argument, JJ? Do you think so-called anti-wokeness is good politics for Canadian conservatives? I, I think it is, but I think that the party is a little bit nervous about it. I think that it's seen as one of these divisive uh, issues, kind of like online with LGBT stuff and uh, abortion and sort of social policy more generally. Um, it was interesting because, yeah, a number of people did kind of talk about wokeness but they did in this kind of oblique way. They use this line where they sort of say like, oh, Trudeau likes to turn Canadians against one another. Like that seems to be like the kind of the preferred language that they use when kind of talking about these kind of woke type issues, which is just like, well, you know, Trudeau shouldn't really be talking about race and gender and sexuality. Like that's kind of unpleasant, right? It's not, whereas if like you imagine like a Republican convention, people would be banging the stage and saying like, men are men and women are women and how dare they tell us otherwise. And, you know, and, you know, like that kind of stuff. Right. And it's like there's a, there's an appetite for that kind of thing in Canadian conservative circles, certainly. And, uh, you know, even when it comes to like some of the race kind of stuff, you know, stuff involving racial discrimination and, and you know, even the history of the indigenous people, like there's lots of conservative commentators that are kind of willing to push back against some of the, you know, quote unquote, woke narratives. But the Conservative Party proper doesn't really sort of seem interested in going down that path. I think because, like I said before, 
it's seen as divisive. It's seen as perhaps sort of freaking out some of the more nervous kind of voters that have certain stereotypes about conservatives being racist or bigoted. And so I think that the idea is that you just give them just enough to kind of feel you give the base just enough to feel that you're on side in these kind of culture war issues, but not really go particularly strongly uh, beyond that. But it is it actually, if I can say one other thing, too, though, I, I do think, you know, there are times when listening to sort of conservative uh, big shots of this sort speak that you become aware of some of the division between kind of like the conservative elite in Canada and kind of what the conservative base cares about. And it's not always just like who's more conservative. Sometimes it's just there's a fixation on some things that I think don't matter as much to rank and file conservatives. And I do think that like some of the stuff involving history just doesn't resonate that much with rank and file conservative people and conservative voters. And I think even broadly, like voters more generally, like some of the stuff about the passport and it's like, oh, we don't care enough about like, oh, the Vimy Ridge Memorial is not on, you know, anymore. Like that kind of thing. Like, I think that matters a lot to conservative intellectuals who know Canadian history very well and often venerate uh, aspects of Canadian history, particular stuff involving the world wars and all that. But I don't know, to other people, I just think that these are pretty low importance issues when compared to, you know, cost of living things and crime and all that. So there's a degree to which I think that in addition to just being a little bit instinctively nervous about going down this path, I think that there's a strategic, you know, perhaps there's a strategic wisdom to it as well. To the extent to which there were contentious issues taken up at the convention, as you mentioned, JJ, the party membership voted pretty overwhelmingly in favor of banning so-called gender-affirming surgery for those under age 18. Do you foresee this being an issue that spills out into the mainstream, or is it mostly a priority for activists on either side of the issue? I mean, it's an it's an optical challenge, as, as they say, in the sense that it's something that Pierre will presumably have to answer for. And they'll say, you know, you might say this, but the conservative base or, you know, your party voted that. And then, you know, Polyev will have to sort of clarify that, you know, well, what the convention says is just a suggestion, blah, 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 blah. I mean, I remember once uh, someone uh, who had worked for Harper once telling me that, uh, you know, in all the days of sort of working on conservative policy and sort of helping direct the government's priorities, never once did it occur to anyone in the prime minister's office to like, let's go and see what the policy resolutions from, you know, several years ago were, and let's use that to determine the priorities of this government. So I think that like, as long as, as Pierre is sort of able to emphasize, you know, that he's the leader, he's the guy in charge, he makes the decisions. I think, you know, what was or wasn't passed at the, at the Conservative Party uh, conference of 2023 is, I think, a story that only really makes you know, that's only really rele relevant now, like in the immediate aftermath of it. And it's the kind of like, like, because we don't we don't think about this in relation to any of the other parties, do we? Right. Like, we don't think like, well, what how, what did the Liberal Party convention pass? And what did the NDP party convention pass? And, is, you know, is Justin Trudeau or Jagmeet Singh like accountable for those resolutions? So I think, yeah, I think this is a sort of short term thing. But, you know, it does in fairness, I think, reflect a little bit of what I was just saying earlier, which is kind of the divide between, you know, the elite of the party and the kind of grassroots of the party. Because to the extent that these resolutions represent uh, issues that are cared about by the sort of rank and file activists who mobilize and, you know, attend the meetings of their uh, EDA and all of this kind of thing, and then get this stuff, you know, percolating upwards, like that's stuff that I guess the conservative party elite has to take seriously is that and that's why then you kind of get these speeches that at least kind of throw symbolic bones in that direction. 
So, you know, it's always been a challenge, I think, for conservatives is to kind of keep uh, a base that I think they often view as being somewhat of a liability in line. And I think that the, res- the sort of the resolution sort of side of these party conferences is, is one of the ways that presumably some of this theme is seen as being able to be let off in a way that's not too damaging. If I may ask a follow up, is the reason to believe that the slow yet steady adoption by conservative premiers of changes to educational practices or curriculum with respect to gender and trans issues suggests that conservative politicians may be starting to read the politics of those issues differently and prepared to lean into them more. Mm. I think that it's something that we're going to have to continue to watch. It, the way it reads to me is that like the conservatives, the conservative sort of provincial parties kind of have an instinctive sense that maybe some of the stuff with trans issues as it relates to children is going too far, but they're also cautious of the consequences that could happen, could befall them if they're sort of seen as going too far in the other direction. So I think there's been a kind of like ginger, gingerly sort of like effort to kind of find sort of like the sweet spot on this issue. And I think that, you know, the polling suggests that they may have found it in terms of like parental consent for children changing their preferred pronouns or names or gender identity in the class. Like the polls seem to suggest that that is a pretty safe spot to be you know, because it doesn't go after sort of trans adults or transitioning in general. It doesn't seem like you're demonizing the existence of transgender people as a class. It seems much more of a kind of like family, uh, you know, familial rights kind of thing. And so, yeah, I think that this is actually feels like an unusual moment in sort of Canadian politics in general, where you have like the provincial parties taking the lead. And then now all eyes are going to be on Pierre Polyev to see if he sort of is able to incorporate this kind of consensus that's emerging at the provincial level. And if he's going to be comfortable embracing that as a federal leader. And I mean, this is obviously not a matter of federal policy. But, you know, it's something he's going to be asked on and presumably it's something that he's going to feel a need to uh, to either defend or denounce. And I think if he does denounce it, that would be very odd because then you would really have a schism between, yeah, between a leader who, like I said, is sort of seen as a sort of champion of a relatively orthodox conservatism and provincial parties, which I think have traditionally been seen as somewhat more kind of uh, a little bit more wishy-washy. So it, that's that's going to be... I'm, I'm really actually, I'm quite legitimately curious to see if, if Pierre ever gets to the point where he's comfortable explicitly articulating where he stands on this and on trans rights more broadly. I would just say in parentheses that I, I agree with your observation that what appears to be the sweet spot for many of these conservative premiers and provincial politicians is to effectively subordinate issues of gender or trans issues and instead elevate a bigger debate about the relationship between the state, parents, and children. And, and one gets a sense that they think they can win that debate. Um, and, and so that may be where Pierre Polyev enters into that conversation. Another major theme within the convention itself and conservative politics more broadly in recent months has been something of a generational change within the ranks of elected conservatives, in, including our mutual friend Jamil Giovanni, who's recently won a party nomination, as well as among the voting public. What do you make of that, JJ? Why have Canadian conservatives recently had more success with reaching younger generations than conservatives elsewhere? It's a good question. I mean, I 
and people ask me this uh, a fair bit, I guess, because I'm seen as having something of a connection to the, the youth because I'm a YouTuber or, or what have you. But when I am asked this, one qualifier that I often put on it is that, you know, it's important that I suppose conservatives don't overread this. You know, in our three party system, to win any demographic very often just means that you have a plurality, that you don't have a majority. And that seems to be the case now. So conservatives are doing better in the plurality. They are the most preferred party of the youth when compared to the others. But overall, the youth do, by majority, support the parties of the center left. And definitely when you get to the very young, it, it tends to be the strongest there. But that said, when we think of sort of somewhat younger people, people in their sort of mid to late 20s or, or early 30s, yes, the conservatives seem to be doing well. And the closest explanation that I can offer would just be that the conservatives are speaking specifically about issues that are very resonant with that demographic, which is housing and affordability issues. And if I may sort of uh, beat the drum of an issue that I've been very uh, outspoken on, uh, some of the censorship stuff with the internet, some of the regulation of the internet, you know, people recognize me as a, as a famous YouTuber on the street a fair bit. And uh, it's quite striking how often people want to bring up internet related stuff. Like people, not just Bill C-11, but Bill C-18, the sort of the news uh, you know, thing that's taken so much news off of people's social media feeds. Like, I find that a lot of young people are very animated by that issue. And uh, for a lot of young people, like, that is their entry into uh, politics, right? Like, they can see very visibly that it has affected, like, policy passed by Justin Trudeau has affected their ability to enjoy a kind of, like, free and uncensored internet. And that bothers a lot of people, right? Like, you, you, you go after... You hit people, you know, where they live and people respond. And I think that that's, that's probably, I mean, I might be overreading this just because this is the world that I sort of inhabit, but I don't know, like people bring that up and blame Trudeau specifically in a way that I think they don't for maybe some of the other issues, right? Like when it comes to like the price of housing and the cost of living in general, I think people can be relatively forgiving on some of that kind of stuff or to believe that it's the result of forces beyond any government's control. But when it comes to things like internet regulation and that, like it is very obvious that, that you know, there's one man responsible and that if you don't like him, then uh, you know what to do. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. The other fascinating difference between some of these bigger macro issues like housing or inflation or whatever and the internet bills is that they're the consequence not only of conscious choices on the part of the government, but ones that the government has essentially leaned into. You know, that is to say, well, you get the sense they're self-conscious about housing and inflation. You don't get the sense that they're self-conscious about these bills. They see them as essential winners. And so it, it's fascinating to see only one, only one party can ultimately be right on that judgment. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out which may be a good segue, JJ, into 
a conversation about the return of parliament and in particular the political challenges facing the prime minister and his government. There's not a lot of positive history for them of previous incumbents overcoming double digit gaps, particularly if it doesn't involve changing the person at the top. If you were advising the government, what should it be doing? Does it need to consider personnel changes or new political tactics or some big idea to try to recapture political momentum? How can the liberals essentially forestall the kind of freefall that they found themselves in in the past several weeks? Yeah, it's interesting because I definitely remember like near the end of the Harper years that there was a lot of focus on like question period in particular. You know, uh, Thomas Mulcair had just become head of the NDP. And I remember he got a lot of praise for his like prosecutorial sort of style and that he was like very firm and like he made he made these good viral clips that is sort of like the stuff of, of, of how, uh, you know, we, we sort of spread political news these days, right? Maybe not these days now that social media is under lock and key, but you know, like that kind of stuff like matters a great deal. Like when a government is near the end of its life, I do think that like stuff like the question period that we normally think of as being somewhat frivolous can start to uh, do some real damage, you know, because it reinforces the idea that the government is sort of tired and on its last legs and people that excel at question period, like Thomas Mulcair, and I think like Pierre Polyev, really, uh, you know, start, start salivating at the opportunity to use the return of parliament, to use any setting of parliament to just endlessly hammer the government on their preferred terms. And so as a result, like the challenge, I think, for the Trudeau government, uh, when we think of parliament in this very sort of like literal sense, is like, do they have a strategy for combating what is going to be a relentless, you know, several months of just nonstop hammering of a very competent and I think skilled opposition leader who enjoys like humiliating this government, teasing this government, joking about these things with this government, bringing up all of, you know, the various uh, missteps that they've made. You know, I think that the, the Trudeau liberals are, I think that at this point, like Pierre has really been in the driver's seat when it comes to defining himself. And I think that the best strategy for the liberals is to, uh, you know, start to attempt to redefine him. It's interesting, like, when I'm looking at some of the left-wing commentators on YouTube and on social media from this country, um, a lot of them have a kind of narrative that Pierre has sort of gotten a soft pass, that, like, he hasn't really been held accountable, that the press is kind of in love with him and is giving him a soft treatment, and that as well, that the opposition parties have not sort of done enough to kind of curb his rise. And so I think that, you know, the Trudeau liberals, I'm, you know, I think I'm not going out on a limb where I, I sort of say that it doesn't seem like that they have a ton of like new initiatives that they're really sort of champing at the bit to start sort of unveiling. It seems like a government that in its own way is ready for an election and is avoiding having an election mostly for self-preservation tactics. But if that is indeed the case, then I think that probably the best self-preservation that they can do in the lead up to an election is really prioritize like attempting to sort of change the channel on Pierre Polyev, like sort of go after him when he seems to be on an ascendancy. Because the best advantage that the liberals have is that they still, in theory, have you know a year or more before the, the, uh, the, the election is, uh, before their deal with the NDP is set to expire. And that gives them a lot of opportunity to change the channel. If they were having an election tomorrow, you know, they'd be cooked. But the fact that they've got this much time suggests that they have a lot of opportunity at their disposal to make Pierre a much more sort of controversial, contentious, sort of un unliked figure, because I do think that at this point, the election is shaping up to be basically a referendum on him, as opposed to on the Trudeau record. We've talked a bit about 
the Trudeau government's internet bills, which of course loomed so large over the last parliamentary sitting. What are some of the sleeper issues you think may manifest themselves, JJ, over the coming weeks and months as Parliament returns to normal sitting? Well, I definitely think actually the thing that we were just talking about before, like I think that the the trans issue could be a very explosive and sort of nation consuming matter, right? Like you kind of get the sense that it's sort of on the low boil right now. And people like you and I who follow this stuff very closely care a lot about it. But I definitely think like if, if, you know, if there continues to be, uh, you know, conservative uh, parties across the the provinces continue to sort of poke at this, if if it becomes anything resembling a sort of consensus policy among the Canadian right, I mean, if there continues to be uh, litigation about it, if there's protest, like if it becomes like a kind of cause celebre for progressives in this country, then I definitely think that that's something that the Trudeau government would be very happy to lean into and very happy to make an issue of great division. Uh, in terms of the, the the political binary, I mean, I don't necessarily think that they would, you know, the public would be on their side. But you know, it's it's interesting because it reminds me of like when when Justin Trudeau was running for election in 2015 against Stephen Harper. One of the big sort of issues that Justin Trudeau uh, was actually out out of public opinion with was the issue of the Syrian refugees, right? Like he basically said, we should open our doors and let as many Syrian refugees as, as, as they want to come to this country. And, you know, that would, it was not an issue that pulled well, but what somebody said to me was that was an issue that Justin Trudeau liked talking about. And so that was an issue that put Justin Trudeau in sort of like his full form. Like it was when he was sort of at his most confident and most sort of persuasive and most charismatic and most passionate, like he sort of in that moment, he would kind of exude a lot of the sort of the, the characteristics that people liked uh, from him, even if necessarily the issue itself, you know, maybe they weren't so hot on. So I definitely think like if issues involving minority rights in any way sort of come to the fore, I think that that gives Justin Trudeau an opportunity to kind of be his his best version of himself. But, you know, sort of beyond that, I, I don't really think that... Uh, that this is a, a sort of political atmosphere in which we're really going to be having robust conversations about public policy one way or the other. I definitely think it's going to be, you know, these sort of like big kind of like marquee divisive issues that can be sort of weaponized in a kind of the context of a, of a polarized electorate. So, yeah, the trans issue would I think would be the, the biggest one to watch. Well, let me try to elevate the conversation here a bit. There was a recent debate on Twitter about Canadian identity and the common view that we lack a shared sense of citizenship or national identity. I should say it strikes me as quite an old debate, actually. Um, but you have an interesting take. Uh, you think what makes Canadian identity distinctive is not what juxtaposes it with the United States, but what we uniquely share with the U.S. vis-a-vis the rest of the world. Talk about what it means to belong to a North American identity and why so many Canadians, including conservatives, resist it. Uh, I appreciate you asking that question because uh, that was actually something that came up actually at the Conservative Party conference uh, a number of times as well. I noticed that this talking point that like Trudeau thinks we don't have an identity was a sort of hot uh, issue. And, you know, I appreciate that because I think, you know, that's a kind of dopey thing that the prime minister said. And I don't think it's actually even something that he agrees with. But um but the, the interesting thing, though, is that, like, in practice, what is the alternative to that? 
So if you say that we're skeptical of Trudeau for sort of saying that we don't have an identity or, if, you know, you know, kind of mainstream sort of progressive intellectuals like to sort of say that kind of thing. Well, then do people on the center right have a good answer to what that identity is? And what I definitely disagree with, and this is actually even something that you sort of saw at the partisan uh, convention, is this idea that like the Canadian identity is solely defined by, you know, Vimy Ridge and John A. McDonald and, you know, the famous five and Terry Fox. And he's kind of like high minded kind of political or not political, like historical figurehead moments. Right. And I, you know, those, that stuff's important. But I definitely think that when we're talking about like the Canadian identity, we have to sort of think of it in terms of like, well, what defines the rhythm of daily life for your average Canadian? And in the videos that I make, I like to talk about sort of like the American kind of like cultural uh, sort of identity, right? And I include Canada in that because I think that Canada is part of a sort of larger North American civilization, not even North American civilization, American civilization, a civilization that was largely built by the United States, to which Canada is in many ways a regional extension of. You know, the great sort of innovations that have been made on this on this continent over the last, you know, 200 uh, years or so have been primarily driven by innovations in science and, you know, you know, food and technology and fashion and entertainment. These are things that have largely come out of the United States, but they define our life as Canadians as much as they define life in the U.S., and I think there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that that sort of way of life as defined both by sort of material things and some sort of, uh, you know, kind of more amorphous values when we talk about, you know, like our, our, our particular sort of conception of freedom and individual liberty and a right to live a life as you choose it. And, you know, a kind of like an embrace of a sort of entrepreneurial culture and, uh, you know, the, this sort of valorization that, that Pierre mentioned at the end of his speech of, you know, like the small businessman in the suburban home with the white picket fence and you have your drink in one hand and your paycheck in the other and the flag is flashing gently in the breeze and this kind of stuff, right? Like it's, it is in a very, you know, sort of like, I guess we could say small A American kind of conceptualization of life and, and the things that define it. And I, as well, like one thing that in my YouTube videos as well that I've really sort of leaned into is the idea that we don't have to demonize or be ashamed of, I think, some of the more material or even commercial aspects of life, too. So, for example, you know, I make a lot of videos where I talk about food and food history and some of the distinctive foods that we eat on this continent. You know, I just made a video the other day where I talked about, you know, the fact that we eat a lot of steak, for instance, or sandwiches. You know, I've made videos where I talk about, you know, that we eat certain candies and snacks and treats and stuff like that. But then, like, there's other stuff, too. It's like, you know, the fact that we like watch watching certain kinds of movies, you know, that we go to certain sort of chain stores. You know, you go to the supermarket and it's a sort of like and it's an, ex an experience. You know, you watch a certain type of movie or play a certain type of video game and that's a certain experience. Like just all these like little things to me add up what it means to live in this country, to be a Canadian. And it's it doesn't always have to be so high-minded. Like, it doesn't always have to be grand. It doesn't always have to be about prime ministers and world wars. Like, sometimes it can be just about living your life with a certain degree of gratitude and looking around and, like, finding all of these things are, are an inheritance, right? Like, it's a great and special inheritance of, of you know, centuries of, of de development and economic growth and, you know, innovation in the, in the realms of entrepreneurship and technology. And, and that's pretty good. And actually, if I may bring it now, Arun, to sort of like the political angle, it's like, I think that that 
is actually something that the conservatives have been relatively, even though they don't quite conceptualize it the way that I'm describing it, they've been sort of savvy at tapping into a little bit. Because when you talk about things like home ownership and, you know, the unaffordability of groceries and that kind of stuff, you're basically kind of saying that the lifestyle that we have come accustomed to is under attack. So it's not just that like the economy is bad in some abstract way. It's no, it's like the economy is bad. And then that trickles down to you being able to sort of live this kind of like conventional Canadian life. Right. And I actually thought that that was like my favorite line. Uh, Jamil said it as well. Right. It's like it's not just that Trudeau broke a promise. It's like he broke the promise. The idea that, like he is in some ways threatening the Canadian way of life and that that is the biggest sort of political uh damage that he's done yeah, that's a great answer very insightful staying on the topic of small a american culture and in particular its middle class culture there's a new academic study out that finds the olive garden and other chain restaurants are the most cross-class institutions in modern society as one article reporting on the study put it quote if a zip code has an olive garden it's also more likely to be a place where people in suits and people in landscaping uniforms know one another, unquote. JJ, talk about the importance of North American egalitarianism in your own worldview and why you think it's underrated when, when we have these debates about Canadian identity and uh, a common sense of citizenship. Mm, yeah, I saw that. Uh, I saw that study as well. I thought that was that was fascinating, right? Because it's true. Like there is an egalitarian nature to our civilization, and it often does manifest at a commercial level. You know, I talked the other day where I, or I just spoke to you now, where I mentioned how I made this video where I talked about steak, for instance, right? Like to eat beef at one time was this very elite sort of thing. Like in the old wor world, you know, most peasants just ate bread. They would very rarely get to eat beef. You know, beef was something that was in the purview of, of the wealthy. And then when we sort of settled this continent, you know, the Europeans brought over and then the cattle sort of thrived in the great open spaces of the American Midwest and the Canadian prairies. And thus we developed this huge, robust cattle industry. And then everybody can have steak. You know, you can go down the biggest uh, seller of steak to cite another great chain restaurant in America is uh, Waffle House, right? So it's like the idea that you can go to Waffle House, a kind of like, you know, ordinary run-of-the-mill middle-class chain restaurant and eat this food that was once reserved for, you know, like the nobility in, in, in England, like that's a remarkable accomplishment. There's just so many examples of that kind of thing where it's like your average person, like there are not these strong uh, barriers between the kind of sort of material experiences that the wealthy can enjoy and the average people can enjoy. And that's something that, that can be sort of lost when we live in this world of populism, where we're very fixated, particular sort of left-wing populism, that is very fixated on the wealthy and, you know, how much wealth is being accumulated and hoarded by the 1% and all of that. Because in many ways, like, that is true. But we are not living in a world where that seems visibly true, and certainly not as visibly true as it has ever been, right? So the, to the extent of like, you know, your average, your super, super, super elite, you know, 1% type of person, like the kind of foods that they eat, the kind of fashion that they wear, 
you know, the places that they have to go to shop to buy things and, you know, fill up their shopping carts. By and large, it's all very similar. Like there has been a kind of like evening of the playing field in terms of that kind of stuff, in terms of just the rhythm of daily life. Now, obviously, the hyper elite can, you know, go on safari to Kenya or whatever. But it's worth noting that like a lot of the ways that wealth now manifests is either in the form of like ostentatious, conspicuous consumption that serves very little practical purpose, such as, you know, buying a yacht or you know, or living in like some super, super, super elite, you know, uh, mansion in the middle of the hills or something, or, you know, in the sense of buying experiences such as going on travel and, you know, having, you know, perhaps uh, you know, more servants or something like that, right? Like these kinds of experiences that, you know, to a lot of like normal people, they don't aspire to it. Like it doesn't interest them, but they aspire to is a kind of like stable, middle-class uh, lifestyle that has never been in many ways more satisfying. Like you've never had a greater sort of abundance of luxuries that satisfy the needs to such an extent that the wealthy now basically have to invent new needs to signify their elevated status because their base ones have just been met. And the base ones having been met are not, having your base needs met is no longer a meaningful distinction between the classes, if that makes sense. Let me just say one of the reasons I think the quote unquote promise of Canada narrative is so powerful and why it's so resonant is precisely the point that you're making. And one of the reasons people are so offended about the current state of the housing market is a sense that those with means are able to help their children or other family members enter the market. And that represents in a way an undoing of the leveling that you're talking about and something that people have grown so accustomed to in our society and culture, which goes back to your point of the kind of meta way in which the promise of Canada narrative works, both as a kind of conceptual discussion about the state of our culture and society, and then quite a practical kind of materialistic one. Mm. It's, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, we're, it, it's, it's interesting because like when you hear the, say the speeches at the conservative convention like a lot of it is based on the premise, probably sometimes overstated, that Canadians are struggling financially at an almost like Dickensian level, right? Like, so there, there, there's a number of speeches that, you know, call attention to very real and very heart rendering stories of, you know, people that can't afford enough food and then, you know, they have to take a fifth job and they're living in a tent and they're, you know, like this kind of stuff, these very sort of lacrimose stories. And again, like, I don't mean to understate them because there are people in this country that are suffering. But I think that the bigger problem uh, when we talk about sort of the financial struggles of Canadians is just the kind of the, the, the sort of like the, the disconnect between certain experiences that were expected and what they're able to afford in kind of the year 2023. So like the idea that you're able to afford all the steak you want, like having steak dinner is perhaps not the big thing, but housing, even as a reasonably sort of, uh, you know, high earning person has become this sort of preposterous expenditure. And then you get into the point where you get into these weird situations where it's like, you know, a 35 year old can live, you know, in, is still living like a college kid, you know, in a sort of studio apartment with, uh, you know, uh, paying like $3,000 of rent a month or whatever, just to live in the city. But then like his other circumstances around him, like how he eats, how he dresses, you know, the entertainment that he consumes and that kind of stuff, like that all sort of seems to be in a different class, if that makes sense. So it's like people can feel when their material circumstances seem kind of disorganized or discombobulated or, 
you know, ununified. And I think that that is sort of something that is weirdly destabilizing and is kind of without precedent, because the idea has always been historically that we sort of climb the ladder of social progress as we age, right? As we get older, we make more money, we opt into, you know, slightly more expensive sort of day-to-day luxuries. And so the idea that you can opt into some but not others and have some of them seem so tantalizing close, so tantalizingly close, and then you're also just very aware of like what's missing at any given time. And I feel like, again, like that is something that seems to be kind of unprecedented and is sort of a unique source of, of, of self-consciousness, I find, among, particularly among young people. Final question. What's the Olive Garden equivalent for Vancouver in Canada, or is it the Olive Garden? <laughs> well, we've only got one Olive Garden in Vancouver, actually, and it's, it's way in Langley for some reason. I don't know why it hasn't... Uh, you know, infiltrated deeper. I mean, in Vancouver, the the equivalent is my favorite restaurant, which is White Spot, which is the great sort of uh, middle class uh, uh, restaurant in this city. I've been going there since I was a kid. I love to get, you know, burgers and shakes. I just went there last night, in fact, with a friend of mine that was visiting from Toronto, had to show her White Spot. And it's remarkable, like, you know, I go to these restaurants, and sometimes I'm a little self-conscious, and it's remarkable just how often the other person is like, oh, I love White Spot too. And they almost sort of say like, it's a secret, like that it's a great sort of shame to admit that you just like basic burgers and fries at a chain restaurant. But like, it, it doesn't make, it, it's like, there's no reason to be self-conscious about it because in many ways it represents the culmination of this great experiment that we've been conducting on this continent for centuries now. Like being able to have a nice, comfortable dinner at a nice, comfortable, middle-class restaurant, ordering these foods that through a long process of evolution, we've sort of determined are some of the most popular foods. You know, we've been able to devise recipes to make them as delicious as they've ever been. Like, it's a remarkable achievement, and it's a great inheritance. And like, I have a personal conservatism that is all about sort of appreciating those kind of things and those kind of accomplishments, and what it means to live in a civilization that has allowed me to enjoy these kind of small luxuries on such a consistent basis. You're here. One of insight in that answer as there's been throughout the conversation. JJ McCullough, writer, political commentator, highly famous YouTuber. Thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.